Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. You know, nothing brings us together like a good death. No. That's true. It's another necrologue. It is another necrologue. And the thing is, is that we don't want to put together necrologues, but when all these like cool figures that have uh, pop culture and paranormal connections pass away, I feel like we have to talk about them. Right. You know? You don't want their passing to go unremembered. But also, like, this is the time to talk about it. So, like, eventually we're going to talk about the things we talk about in this podcast. So now is the time to talk about it when there's so many remembrance pieces yeah. and the, the research is, is ripe. Yeah, and they're fresh in our memories. Speaking of ripe research, Wendy, where were you just at? Oh, my gosh. I've been on the most ultimate paranormal sites tour. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. This could be an episode in and of itself, but... I'll just say that uh, I just came from Point Pleasant, West Virginia, which was where the Mothman was originally sighted. And there's a Mothman museum and a big statue. There's a memorial for the Silver Bridge where there was a terrible tragedy. The bridge collapsed. And, you know, some say the Mothman was a premonition of that or gave warnings of that. But uh, that was really an interesting trip and an interesting stop, I recommend, if you're ever going through that part of the country. But before that, I also was in Baltimore, and one week after hearing Bob Murch's speech about the Ouija board origins, Mm -hmm. I actually visited three of the places that he talked about in his presentation, including the 7-Eleven, where there's a plaque commemorating that that was the location where the Ouija board was originally named, and it was named by asking it what its name was. So that was cool. Got some pictures there. Saw the Ouija board factory, um, or the previous... Right. They, Original. Do, they, do they still make Ouija boards in Baltimore? Actually, I don't think so, but the building was the original, like it was a factory built just for that. Because they're, they're still they're... making dead bodies. <laughs> well, yes, that's true. <laughs> and I also saw Edgar Allan Poe's grave, which is kind of not paranormal, but still cool. And then was... before that, we were in Gettysburg. So there's all kinds of ghost stories from there. Did you have any experience? Did you see anything weird? Unfortunately, I didn't. I was really, really hoping for it because everyone I know who's ever been to Gettysburg has some kind of cool story about seeing or feeling something. Uh, but I personally did not. Okay. So, but I really enjoyed uh, checking out all the battlefields. The grounds are incredible, immaculate, really well taken care of. And just uh, the sense of history and of what happened there is very moving. So I recommend that as also a stop. Now, both of you guys have been to the site of winged humanoid encounters. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So now coming off of last week's episode on the Chicago Mothman and the winged humanoids that people have seen yes. in the Chicagoland area, going to the sites, what do you think about people's sightings? Do you think that they were areas that where you're like, man, you could totally see some winged dude with flying, like red eyes and wings, like landing on the ground and stuff? Or you know, like in the places, because now you're both winged humanoid researchers yes so like i was just wondering if that being to these places has now changed your mind on the validity 
For me, I've been up to about half of um, the sighting locations now uh, that go with the current Chicago flap. And I have to say, for the most part, it's really made me a skeptic uh, because, you know, a lot of these places are very, very populated areas. And I, it's just hard for me to imagine someone seeing something so extraordinary and just having it be a couple of people that have seen it. I mean, some of the sightings, uh, or a lot of them actually along Lakeshore Drive, you know, when you're there, people are just like practically on top of you, even late at night. And so it's hard to see how only a few people, like a handful of people would see it. So yeah, that it's, it's really made me kind of reassess, um, there sure. was a sighting at Lollapalooza. Like, yeah. Lollap- like everybody's got their phones out because right. they want to catch, you know, something <laughs> yeah. going on. And like nobody catches. The band over here is great. But did you see this dude with wings over here? Like there's a dude with <laughs> right. wings flying. Oh, yeah. No, no. I, I'm, I'm trying to tape. This is my favorite song. Yeah. And, and I also like uh, one of the, the sightings that had a, a picture accompanying it. Uh, I was able to match up the shot exactly. And figure out where in the parking lot the person must have been to take the photo, and it doesn't match up with what they said, how uh, how they uh. saw the ma- Mothman, like, swoop down in front of Best Buy. Yes, that's what the account says. As they were just coming out, <laughs> you know, like, they came out the doors, it swooped down in front of them, and they, you know, grabbed for their camera and finally got their camera out, and then they get it, and, I mean... And you discovered it was a covered parking lot. Well... No, but you'd think um, they'd be closer to the Best Buy building. But, sure. I mean, this was way out, like, mid-parking lot. So, you know, if, you know, it just doesn't follow their account because you think it would be a lot further out. if, if And it takes a while to get there in, in, into the parking lot. So you think they would have lost sight of it by then. And the other thing that really made me uh, question that one in particular is all the planes flying overhead uh, because it's like five minutes away from O'Hare. And so I was able to get a lot of shots of planes, which look a lot like the photograph. The, the, winged humanoids. Yeah, it looked a lot like what was supposedly a winged humanoid. Yeah, and when you see those and you compare it to what was supposedly Mothman, you're like, come on, dude, that looks like a plane. Not so much. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, I hate to be a Dominic Thomas. I'm still open-minded. I mean, there was one place where it was, like, kind of a secluded neighborhood. And, you know, just imagining the Mothman, like, uh, on top of this house, like, crawling among the chimneys. And, then you know, it was very, like, uh, Spring Hill Jack-esque. And, and I could think maybe that that could happen. So, and I haven't been all to all of them, just half of them. I'm going to go to all of them and maybe some... You know, we'll see more authentic than others. All right. How about West Virginia? What is What was it like out there? Oh, well, I will contrast Allison's experiences by saying that I could totally envision someone seeing a mothman or a flying humanoid uh, because it's really out in the country and it's a very small town. It's very, very dark at night. So you have clear views of the sky. And the first sightings, the original sightings of the mothman were out by the dynamite factory. And we actually drove out to the former location where that was. And it is so remote and so wooded. The fact that there's a dynamite factory associated yes. with a tragedy. It's TNT, like, oh, TNT, dynamite. J.J. Wa- <laughs> Walker was the guy who set the explosive. <laughs> and the Mothman was seen actually flying into the old abandoned dynamite building. So they started right. referring to it as the birdhouse. 
But anyway, um, <laughs> it reminded me a lot of, Mike, the time that we went to Bray Road to check out that scene where, you know, the, the Beast of Bray Road had been reported. Yeah. And it felt a, very similar to that. Very oh, okay. dark, secluded. And the original sightings were from way before cell phone cameras or, you know, right. digital cameras at all. So it was like 1966, I think, was the first sighting. And the eyewitness accounts, which I read <laughs> at the Mothman Museum... I mean, they were extremely dramatic. It was not like there's any question. It was this thing flying over their vehicle and chasing them and a feeling of dread and, you know, extreme. Like, not there was just there was no question of what they saw the way it was described, at least. OK. That's, yeah. <laughs> so that because I got to tell you, when I first heard this and we'll get we got to get to Toby Hooper here. But yeah. we just want to keep yeah, going sorry. the Mothman because it is. No, it is top of mind. I tell you, like, Allison's been investigating. You're hanging out in West Virginia. Uh, the the Chicago the Chicago <laughs> Phantom is top of mind. Yeah. The first time I read about the Mothman, I was like, stupid. I, and I have to I have to say, my, the the skeptic in me, the James Randy, the James the amazing skeptic Randy in me came out immediately <laughs> like stupid. Like oh yeah, like a like people are seeing like a cartoon character flying around with big red eyes. Like yeah, I really believe that. Well, the thing is, when you hear about Bigfoot, you've seen apes. You've seen polar bears. You've seen things in the in the zoo that you can make a you know you can make a logical inference for. Like oh yeah, of course there may be a missing link somewhere in there that we don't get. But the thing is, if there is a dude with wings flying around, like we'd all we'd be like holy crap, look at that. We'd all see him. And so that's why first of all, Mothman is a tulpa. <laughs> yes, yeah. I don't know. Well, well maybe he's a be. space vampire. We'll get to that. Well, we'll get to that. But the thing is, but then I read the book, John Keel's book, and it's really yes. more about UFOs than it is about winged humanoids. So it kind it of make, it makes a connection there that felt more believable to me. But he also talks about the Tulpa theory in that, I guess, the shadow came out close to around the time when Mothman was first seen, the comic oh. character, the shadow. Hmm. So in the book, he talks about that theory of the Tulpa that a lot of people were thinking about that character you know, so that maybe they willed it into being or whatever. So, Oh, yeah, I forgot about that, that that was because there was a lot of Eastern mysticism included in, in the shadow because it was a um, it was a radio series and then it was a, a a comic series. And then they they made a movie with Alec Baldwin with a big like with a big fake nose. Yeah. And uh, I, like, I, I guess that, that was the joke. The shadow n- knows. <laughs> um, oh. Anyway, but we used to listen to sh- episodes of The Shadow because when we were on road trips, at least I don't know if you were around for that, Allison, but they'd oh, re- yeah. mom and, I, mom and yeah. dad would, would rent, would, would go to the library and they would get old tapes of 1940s radio serials. And that's Sweet. what we'd listen to when we were. were and so um, I heard a bunch of Shadow episodes that way. Uh, but that's that's cool. I love the idea of the Tulpas were writing John Peel's book. I forgot about that. <laughs> so we got a couple of Mothman investigators with us, folks, and it's very exciting. Um, <laughs> we are fearless they, monster hunters. <laughs> <laughs> and they will keep us updated if the Mothman shows up at their houses tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. All right. For sure. But now we're going to go into a little bit of the, the fictional realm uh, of the paranormal instead of the, um, and, you know, some people, like I mentioned, James Amazing Randy, he'd say all of it's the fictional realm, but I don't <laughs> think so. I will get back to James the Amazing Randy tonight uh, in one of the things. Oh, we will? Yes, we will. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> but we're talking about filmmaker Toby Hooper, who made some of my favorite scary movies when I was a kid. So I don't know about you guys, but just 
The idea of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Horrifying. When I was a kid, <laughs> like, it just seemed to me like that would be the most scary, exploitative, terrifying, bloody, violent film. You know? Yeah. Yeah, just by the title. Just by the title. And, you know, it was, it was the kind of movie that, you know, my, like, our, your parents are never going to rent. They're never going to be like, hey, you know what we should have for movie night? I'm going to I'm gonna get the popcorn maker out, and then we're going to watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Kids gather on the TV. And you'll never sleep again. <laughs> well, you know, I got to say, Dad rented the thing. Oh, and that's I, true. That was, that was a difficult one. <laughs> Dad rented time. the thing. Right, and I cried. I was like six years old. Oh. I cried. Oh. So that was the most terrifying thing. But... So the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, anyway, I, I didn't see it until I was 12. And it was on TV. And I, I couldn't believe they were showing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre on TV. Comes out in 1974. And it's like this really low-budget film that Toby Hooper created in Austin, Texas. And using, you know, unknown actors and everything. Uh, except, you funny, uh, there's a narration at the end of the movie. And the narration is delivered by John Larroquette. You know, you know, Dan from Night Court. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't know that he was from Austin or whatever, but, but John Larroquette's the guy that delivers the narration at the end of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wow. And, I did not know that. Yeah. And in the 1970s, we have these big budget, like horror movies. The Exorcist comes out and the Exorcist is this big budget special effects extravaganza that's terrifying. It's religious in nature. It's... Um, William Friedkin, who we're going to have to talk about, we'll talk about in the newsletter this week, because William Friedkin just directed a real exorcism, or he documented a real exorcism. Huh. But the director, William Friedkin, he was a you know big budget. He he directed The French Connection. He just was a like a like a Hollywood elite kind of filmmaker. And then you have Toby Hooper, who's like this independent film professor in Austin, Texas, and he makes this super low budget. And not even that graphic, if you guys have seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's not even that graphic of a film. Most of the gory stuff is kind of off camera. And funny enough, Toby Hooper said that when he was working on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he was trying to make it a PG film. What? Yeah. He wanted to make it really scary, but at the same time, not be so gory that it was, that it got a... A horrible rating. So he was sending cuts back and forth and information back and forth to the people at the uh, the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, to see if he could get a PG rating. And then when he finally sent it to him, they gave him an R rating. But he said if he hadn't been communicating with them, they would have given him an X. And if they gave wow. him an X rating, there no way anybody would have seen the movie. Huh. And so if you guys haven't seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre out there in podcast land, uh, it's about like four hippies. You know, and this is the early 70s. We came out in 1974. That, you know, four hippies are riding around in a van. What's, what, could, what could be more wholesome than that? Right. right. <laughs> Kumbaya, my lord. Like, That's what? right. And the thing is, because it's no-name actors and stuff, and it really does feel like the hippies have this, you know, they've got a real sense. And two of the characters are family, like the main character, and then she's, her brother is in a wheelchair, um, Franklin. And it really feels like these could be real people. And that's the fun part of it, not having it be Hollywood actors. And kind of like when you first saw the Blair Witch Project. Yeah. yeah. You know, the fun part was that you'd never seen these people before. There was, all you'd seen them in was, a, was this movie. And so the Texas Chainsaw Massacre set the four hippies. They pick up a hitchhiker. Hitchhiker ends up being crazy. You know, the van breaks down or runs out of gas and they got to go to this farmhouse to find it. And that's 
where Leatherface and his family live, and <laughs> and things things just go south from there. And it follows that kind of horror movie formula where there is a final girl. You know, one girl makes it to the end of the film, and you know, and survives. And then they read the narration by John Larroquette. That sounds but, like a good name for a band, Final Girl. Well, there was a movie. There was a movie called Final Girl a couple of years ago that kind of played on the trope of the oh, of a final oh, girl in the nice. film. But the other thing about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is that in the marketing they said based on a true story. Now, it was not based on a true story whatsoever. Ah. And when you think about that, you know, we, we, we've been talking a lot lately. I mean, last week we all saw Roger Perrin and his daughter, yeah. well, was it? Andrea Perrin, and we saw them, that the family that The Conjuring was based on. And you yes. know that what made The Conjuring extra scary is because they said based on a true story. Right. You know, I remember sitting there in the theater, like when the chair raises up and like flies around and stuff. I'm like, like I'm like, that must have really happened. They put it in a movie. <laughs> and they said it's based on a true story. You do believe it when you see that at the beginning. It's just yeah. like, or at least I do. It's, it's a default, you know. <laughs> why would they lie to me? Yes, why? Or you think that they can't lie to you. Yeah, there's got to be some law against it or something. <laughs> there's some kind of veracity in film Ethics. law. That we know about. Like, of course not. So Toby Hooper used that in the, in the marketing of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to make it extra scary, to make it extra shocking, was the idea that's based on true story. Wow. And it wasn't, you know, they just thought of this, this cool, scary horror movie idea. And, you know, I haven't seen it in about 10 years, but since I originally saw it when I was 12, the TV version, when I, then, then when I saw the actual version, there's not that much edited out of the TV version because wow. it's not that gory. But the commercials break up the intensity of the film. So when you go through the movie, when you get to like the last, like, court, like third of the film, the last act, it's like a nonstop, it's scary, poopy pants fest. Uh, <laughs> time like, for the chance. <laughs> time for, time oh. to put on your chance. <laughs> and so that's, it's really great. And uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, Good film, and as far as when it comes to like debut horror films, I mean, you don't get much more legendary than the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. And if they did take any kind of inspiration from reality, well, you know who they took it from. Mm, Come on, you guys know, that's a man, Ed Gein. Ed Gein, <laughs> that's right. The only famous person to ever come from Plainfield, Wisconsin. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Wendy, are you are you standing up for Ed here? You're like, hey, come on. No, I'm not standing up for him, but I mean, his story, as I understand it, is a little different than. <laughs> well, right, well, it wasn't. Right. And they said the same thing about Psycho too. Was based on Ed Gein. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, well, Psycho was the relationship with the mother, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the fact that Ed Gein liked making things out of human skin, and the idea right, of right. Leather, the idea of Leatherface is that he actually makes a mask out of human skin and that's what he wears on his head wow and Ugh. that's the same idea of buffalo bill in the silence of the lambs that buffalo bill in the silence of the lambs is making a woman's suit put the lotion in the basket <laughs> it, it, it puts the lotion on his skin or else it gets the hose again that's way too creepy <laughs> But, oh gosh! Now, so, now we have a recording well, we guess, can use to terrify people. That's the reason for the lotion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You gotta but keep your I, skin supple. Oh. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Because he's making a skin suit, and that's that's based on Ed Gein. But most of his was grave robbing. Ah, that's right. Most of Ed Gein's was grave robbing. He did kill somebody. Yes, and dressed her like a deer. The local hardware store owner Bernice Warden 
So they, when they, they searched Ed's farm in 1957, they discovered her decapitated body hanging upside down in, in the barn. And then Ooh. on further search of the property, authorities also found various human remains, including a trash can made out of a human skull, chairs covered in human skin, and skull bedposts. And this is from a, an article in Bloomhouse from July 6, 2016, the real story behind the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, perhaps the trait that mostly links Ed back to Leatherface was his fondness for turning human skin into apparel. That's right. That's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> Among the other remains, they found a corset, leggings, masks, and a dress all made from the skin of young women. Yeah, he liked to dance around in it. Yeah. It, <laughs> I forgot like about that. Buffalo oh, Bill. Oh, man. From, yeah. So, I mean, Ed Gein obviously disturbed, and poor Bernice Warden uh, died for his, his obsession. My poetry teacher at uh, UW-Milwaukee, she actually, when she, she was a kid, she volunteered so they used to have dances at the prison, I guess. I mean, oh, like, how can that be a good idea? But anyway, um, or did he have a soft bed? Was he, was, was he committed? But No, Edgine died in Mendota Mental. Edgine died in Madison. Yeah, okay. that's right. So, so he did have a soft bed, though. Mendota Mental Health? I'm not sure what you mean by a soft bed. Is that some oh. kind of prison lingo for crazies? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so you get a soft bed. That's when you get... Um, committed to like a mental institution. A hard bed is when you actually serve time in prison, something like that. Okay, so what are you? Uh, uh, what are you been watching Oz a lot or something? <laughs> I don't know. I just picked it up somewhere. You know, I got the lingo. Yeah, uh, I didn't. Know. Any, I picked it from anyway, my the, my, cor- my correctional officer friends. The point is <laughs> that that uh, my poetry teacher, when she was a girl at Mendota Mental Health Institution, they used to have. Dances where volunteer women would come in, and she danced with Ed Gein. Awesome! Yes. You never told me this. Yes, she—that was like her claim to wow. fame. She used to tell okay, that's, people that. That's Ed, a very special. Would Ed like pet fame. her skin and be like, "Your skin's oh, so soft. I, it I, would I, feel I, so good on my face." I don't know, but that's just. I think maybe she danced with them, and then later, like after the dance, she's like, you know, somebody's like, you know, you just dance with. And she's like, no. And they're like, it's that game. <laughs> so, that's awesome. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that was weird. Quite a story. Well, what I love that story. Well, the, the thing is, and when you realize it, so their father, the Gein brothers, their father was an alcoholic. George Gein was a waste of space, alcoholic jerk. And their mother just was very cruel. You know, uh-huh. would talk about how a woman would never love them and all these things. And, you know, no one will ever love you like your mother. Oh. And she screwed him up, mm. you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's a difference between screwing you up and taking what's already kind of crazy and turning it into a human suit, you know, wearer. There's a difference between, right. like, yeah, yes, dude, my, that's a little bit my, extreme. my mom was horrible versus... My mom like shaped me into the human skin suit wearer that I am today. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Ed Gein. So that's the closest thing you have to an inspiration behind the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that's yeah. just loosely based on the idea that Leatherface. And they never even specifically say that he's wearing a human skin mask. Right. Maybe he's in the maybe in the second movie. Ugh. Yeah. So Toby Hooper, you know he. He did this low-budget film, and, and then did it gain such popularity that he got all these other, like, major credits? Well, it wasn't a huge influence for a couple of years. 
So, you know, it took a little while for Toby Hooper to get the, you know, the respect. And, and also, this is not today's world. This is the world of cinema in the mid-1970s, where, um, you know, you didn't have an internet to, like, to take off on. Mm-hmm. So it did take him a few years. But, I mean, he does get a huge, very influential spot in directing the TV adaptation, the miniseries of Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Oh, wow. Right. That, 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 now that was scary. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we both watched that when we were kids, and woo! I mean, the whole scene with the scratching on the window—oh yeah. my god! Oh, the scratching on the window of Salem's Lot is something uh, I'll always remember. Yeah. No, I don't think I saw the TV series, but I saw the movie. I remember the scratching. Well, they would show it on TV again because it was, it was a two-episode TV series. Okay, gotcha. Starring David Soul, the blonde guy from Scarsky and Hutch. Oh, oh wow. yeah, that's right. So very seventies, and that you know, hey, David Soul. But also, I mean, what you forget about Salem's Lot is it's got a lot of these great TV actors and these you know these bit characters from the nineteen seventies. It's got Jeffrey Lewis as the grave digger and the father of Juliette Lewis, and also like Clint Eastwood's sidekick from Every Which Way But Loose and Any Which Way You Can. The movies with the orangutan, and uh, I used to love watching Jeffrey Lewis in movies. So he was a delight in Salem's Lot. He's got one of the scariest moments in the film when he gets bitten by this kid. Oh man, yeah, that would be a good one to rewatch to to see if it still scares you as much as when you were a kid. I watched it again about fourteen years ago, and it's 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 still great. It's still Halbape. Eh? Yeah, and James Mason does a great job. So the you know great British actor James Mason, actually who plays the first um, Umber Umber in. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's version of Lolita. When if you've ah, ever seen ah. if you've ever seen Stanley Kubrick's version of Lolita, it is see it just because it's 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 like Lolita without any fangs whatsoever. But they still find a way to make it salacious. Ah. But anyway, James Mason also um, uh, what's he North by Northwest? Right, he's in North by North. He's awesome in North by Northwest, playing against Cary Grant, and he is the familiar of the vampire in Salem's Lot. Oh. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So, what do you mean a familiar of the vampire? What does he? Well, he's the guy that can come out during the day. Ah, okay. So he he's like the Renfield. Yeah, the Renfield, or um, you think in the movie Fright Night. Yeah. Like the yeah. the vampire in Fright Night has like the guy next door, and I think that's supposed to be inferred that like they make people think that they're like a gay couple or whatever to keep the other people away in Fright Night. Right. Yeah. Um, or like you know, like so don't ask questions or whatever because it's the late eighties and people yeah. are squares. Yeah. And so he is the guy who takes care of the vampire. And when you finally see the vampire in all of its blue face, ugly, bald, fanged glory, there's no other movies, you know, besides the original Nosferatu than Salem's Lot that make the vampire a really thing of horror. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened next for Toby? Well, after Salem's Lot, he went into, um, well, obviously, probably the film that, the, the second film that most people know him for, and that is Poltergeist. Yeah, Poltergeist. Oh, Ooh, man, that, right. that scene where the guy is, like, taking his face off in the mirror. I mean, that just really messed me up. I was like, no, I can't watch that fart. got to close my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a big controversy over Poltergeist because, well, Steven Spielberg was on set most of the time. So think about the early 80s. Like, Steven Spielberg is the hottest thing in Hollywood, you know? Mm-hmm. He, just, he just came off. Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was obviously everybody loves. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Jaws. Um, he made 1941, uh, 
which yeah. I, I w- I'd like to say that's the worst movie that Dan Aykroyd's ever been in, but <laughs> it is not. Um, is Dan so Aykroyd 19- in that too? Is yeah, it? Dan Aykroyd's in it. John Belushi's in yeah, it. Yeah, John Belushi, yeah. Tim I Matheson. Wow. Um, wow. Anyway, so, but 1941 is, his, like, is an epic fail. Okay. You know, like is a, well, is a if you're going like, to go out, go out in a big way. Right, he just swings and misses. And then he come, but he comes back with like Raiders of the Lost Ark. So that's a pretty good comeback with like one of the greatest adventure movies of all time. And then the next thing is he wants to make a horror movie. But he's busy because he's got E.T. brimming at the same. This is what I'm talking about. Steven Spielberg is the biggest thing happening in movies yeah. in this era. Like nobody has this hit parade like he does in the early 1980s. Like he is a hero. And so he's got E.T. running, but he also is executive producer on Poltergeist. And he hires Toby Hooper to be the director. And it's his idea for the story. And then he hires Toby Hooper because he wants to make it really scary. But the thing is, is like there's these rumblings around. And even I think the Directors Guild of America has an investigation to see whether Toby Hooper was the real director or Steven Spielberg was the real director. Really? Yeah. And it ends up that Steven Spielberg has to take a, a page ad out in Variety apologizing. Wow. Saying that, saying that, saying that I am, you know, Toby, I'm the producer. Toby Hooper was the real director of this film and stuff. Huh. And so there's all that drama about Poltergeist because Poltergeist is a monster hit, you know, like, and everybody, yeah. everybody remembers the commercials because they got Carol Ann. So picture this 1982, you're watching TV and you see this little cute blonde girl watching uh, Static. Yeah. And she's watching Static and says, they're here. Oh, man, so that creepy. was so creepy. And because you're watching the TV and then the idea that it could come out of the TV, you right. know, was that was the first time you thought about that. Yeah. It could be a and, portal for evil. And it is. And, and so this goes back into, so it's funny, we're talking about Toby Hooper as being the, you know, somebody who brought in like low budget horror and create something, you know, extraordinarily memorable and uh, extremely influential with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Here he comes in from the other side with an unlimited budget, right? You know, so a poltergeist that scares the crap. Like, you know, you get you get no budget, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, yeah. uh, and then you it have. Was a, I read it was like a three hundred thousand dollar budget for that one, Just and that, like you know nothing by. <laughs> all the money went to John Larroquette. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like so because that greedy bastard took all of it. No, but but the thing is, is that so? So Poltergeist. I mean, it int- it does introduce a bunch of, I guess, influential genre tropes that we still yeah. kind of look at today. So number one, it's the idea that if a if a graveyard has been disturbed, mm-hmm. then that's going to cause problems. You're going to pay, right? If a graveyard is going to disturb, that like the TV will steal your child. <laughs> um. So it introduces that. It also, you know, introduces, they have parapsychologists in the movie, you know, yeah, that investigate right. it. I, I thought that was a really cool part. Where, and, and funny, too, because it was kind of uh, Ghostbusters-esque in a way, because there, there's that comment in Ghostbusters about the mass sponge migration and how the sponge is, <laughs> like, moved a couple of inches. And, and that's kind of like what the parapsychologists were saying, too, you know, some... Uh, in that in in Poltergeist, that oh yeah, we saw this truck it moved like a couple of inches by itself, and then they open the door to the kids' bedroom and everything's flying around, and <laughs> right. that was really a fun. You know, if there was a funny part in the movie, that was it. Yeah, oh no, I that, and then that's the guy's exactly right. face came off. <laughs> <laughs> right, 
And the, and the other really funny part of the movie is at the end where they push the TV out of the hotel room or the motel room. They go in the motel and then <laughs> right. they, the whole family yeah. goes in there and then Craig T. Nelson pushes out the um, Oh, that's right. I forgot the TV. about that. And, you know, the whole idea of also the house like imploding at the end. Like, I remember, that's something that sticks in my <laughs> head is that house like, <laughs> like imploding and then oh, disappearing. So spooky. So, and then there's like a, the, the dragon. Like, Poltergeist is a, it's a, it's a classic. Like, it is and, a great horror movie. It's disturbing. What I like, too, is, is the, the wife when she gets that white streak in her hair. Yes. Oh, that yeah. Was, that was really good, too. Like, you know, bringing back that idea of the white streak. <laughs> Or your hair turn white because it was so horrifying. <laughs> right. Well, what is, I love that. What, is, what is Ernie Hudson saying Ghostbusters? I think that'll turn you white. <laughs> That's you right. Know? So you're talking about the wife, Jo Beth Williams. Yes. Now, she's got this scene in the pool. Yeah. That, uh, and she talks about this because, now here's the thing. Now we're entering urban legend territory. Okay. So this is where da, we get da, the, par- the paranormal part. Urban legend territory is... That the people involved with the production of Poltergeist were like they died an early death. Now, number one, Poltergeist was made. It was released in 1982. It is now 2017, and Toby Hooper just died at the ripe old age of 74, which is still yeah. young by today's standards. But still, he's not you know a spring chicken. Yeah, that curse um, isn't doing a very good job. Right, the curse. <laughs> like they should get lessons from King Tut or somebody because this uh, yeah. curse sucks. No, they should talk to uh, the crone. And, yes. you know, Greg there and Dana's go. museum, because now she knows how to curse people. All right. So Joe Beth Williams talks about this pool scene, and she does this in, because they have several, like this E! True Hollywood story, The Curse of Poltergeist. And then the Biography <laughs> Channel has The Curse of Poltergeist. And everything is, you know, it's classic reality TV. We need half an hour to fill, and we're going to fill it with The Curse of Poltergeist. And they interview Joe Beth Williams, and she talks about this scene in the pool where, like, these skeletons come out in the pool. And it's like a... She's trapped and it's dark and skeletons come out. It's terrifying. And she says, you know, I thought they would be fake skeletons. But it turns out that it's a lot cheaper to buy real human skeletons than it is <laughs> to get fake skeletons. And that's why the and, and they try to in the in the E True Hollywood story and stuff, they try to say that's why there's the curse of the poltergeist. Is it because they uh, use real skeletons? Yeah, which is, you know, so ironic given the whole theme of the movie is Right. You know, messing with with sacred. With the the dead. (laughs) Right, exactly. Now, this is interesting. Here's, so I was, I said, like, did they, maybe, did they use real skeletons in Poltergeist? Because that doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, that's a, yeah, you got to look into the veracity of that claim. Well, okay. So now this is on Quora.com, and this is from a guy named Stuart Land, his studio SL.com. He's a, he's a guy that worked in movies as a sculptor from the mid 80s. And he answers the question, because somebody writes on Quora, what is the history of the use of real human corpse parts in movie effects, and how were they acquired? He said, well, they weren't corpse parts, they were skeletons. And I don't know when it started. My guess would be long ago. Why India? Okay, so the idea is they bought them from India. They were the only country, as far as I know, who sold medical-released skeletons for international resale. We would get crates of complete skeletons all mangled together. It was pretty eerie. Ah. The production companies stopped using them right after Predator or Poltergeist 2. So this must be back in about 86. Or India stopped exporting them. I can't remember exactly. Oh my gosh. The reason supposedly was that maybe these bodies weren't coming from strictly medical research and certain people were being sold off. 
There is no way to know that's true, but production companies decided to stop it altogether in the late 80s. Ah. We did use some corpses from one movie, redid them, and used them in another movie. We used animal bones, too. My friend and I had spare ribs one day and then used the... And then used the bones for a scene in Predator that was filmed but not shown on screen. It may have been in the second movie, but I can't remember. Things made for the first movie that were too gross were used in the second because the ending changed. But they were real skeletons. Wow. So, but there's no, curse of the, there's no curse of the Predator. Like Arnold's still around. Yeah, that's true. That's Jesse, a good point. Yeah, Jesse Ventura's still around. But it is, again, you know, going back to the fact that the theme of the movie is the house was built on top of an old burial ground, right? Right. You know, you'd, you'd think the people involved in the movie might be a little bit more sensitive to right. the notion of using that. human remains. But also, when you, when you think about it, I mean, people donate their bodies to science. I mean, people could donate their bodies to Hollywood. Yeah, I Maybe, know. but aren't there regulations on that stuff? I mean, not in India and, and disease spreading and whatnot. I, I think there would have to. I don't know. I think if it's, if it's just a skeleton, like the thing is, I think of a, think of a skeleton that's in a... And you can buy like old skeletons and stuff. Even on eBay, I think you can buy like what? no, what like talking? seriously, really old skeletons that were used in like medical research and stuff, or that were used Mike, in. Were you skeleton Grafton? shopping recently? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I well, I as part of this, I did take a look. But my birthday is not till March. <laughs> like my kidding, birthday's right. coming up. <laughs> oh, right. that's what it, that must have been. It. Sorry, yeah. sorry spoil your birthday but, surprise, Alice. Oh uh, yeah. I'm, I, didn't know I was getting a skull for my birthday. <laughs> and also remember, universities will sell skeletons to each other and stuff like that. So the, but that's the idea. The, the idea is that you don't exploit them in a movie, but you sell them to other universities or other uh, places of learning yeah. uh, so that people can study a real human skeleton. But so it, it looks like that part might be true. They may have used real skeletons on the set of Poltergeist. Okay. Huh. Now, did that cause the curse? Well, let's go into what the curse actually was. What happens is the oldest daughter in Poltergeist. Remember, the Poltergeist, there's three kids. There's Robbie, the brother. Um, there's Carol Ann, the youngest yeah. daughter, the one who gets sucked on the TV. They're here. Mm, and, yeah. and there's, there's Dana, who is the, like the teenage daughter, who gets into it with the tree or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and she was portrayed by an actress named Dominique Dunn. Okay. So Dominique is, is 22 years old when she portrays the sister in the first Poltergeist film. And she died on November 4th, 1982 at Cedar Side Eye in Los Angeles, four days after her boyfriend choked her into a coma. Yeah, that was horrible. Horrible. So, so, so she ends a relationship with this Los Angeles chef named John Sweeney. And then on Devil's Night, 30th October, 1982, he comes by to plea his case or whatever and anyway and they ends up strangler and he leaves her for dead in the driveway and so she does die she's murdered died he's convicted of manslaughter only serves like three and a half years of a sentence which what? well the interesting thing is so dominique dunn her father is a guy you would see on reality tv and cable and stuff like that for years afterwards he's a guy he always wore like a really nice suit like a white suit his name was dominic dunn and they even show him in like the, uh, uh, what was the OJ? The, you guys watched the OJs, the People vs. OJ Simpson that came out last year? Yeah. Well, he's portrayed by Burt Cooper from Mad Men, portrays Dominic Dunn. But Dominic, <sighs> right. So Dominic Dunn is a guy that's always on CNN or always on court TV and stuff talking about these things. And he wrote several crime books and true crime books and everything. And a lot of experience came from 
this tragedy that happened to him and the death of his daughter. It's terrible. And so she is the first victim of the poltergeist curse. Okay, and the next victim then, Heather O'Rourke. Now, she's only six years old in the original poltergeist, which is, I would say six years old, like... That would be traumatizing. (laughs) Yeah. Right, but you're on the movie set and everybody's telling you it's safe and everything and Uncle Steve (laughs) is giving you hugs and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) So she's in the next two Poltergeist movies. So they have Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. And I remember I had had a button from that movie on my jean jacket when I was like in grade school. And Poltergeist 2, the the tagline was, they're back. Yeah. (laughs) Right? So Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. And then they made Poltergeist 3, where Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams weren't even in it. Um, Tom Skerritt took over, like, like she went to stay with relatives, and then the same crap happened to him. Um, and Poltergeist 3 was actually, actually not that bad, but she died shortly, or actually during the movie production, and in February 1988, 1st of February, they thought it was just flu, yeah. um, but yeah. she had a bowel obstruction, right. and the toxins from the bowel obstruction made it into her bloodstream. That's horrible, so too. So sad. Yeah, that is a horrible way for a little girl to go. And scary, you know. But it wasn't sudden. She was diagnosed with Crohn's disease the year before. Okay? Oh. Right. But, but the illness came on. They thought it was like the flu or something. And then it just happened right. really quickly. Like she, was, she went from being seemingly very healthy to gone really quickly. So Right. So that, that's what makes it like shocking. It's tragic. Shocking and scary. And that's, that's what fuels the urban legend of the curse. Right. You know, that how do these two actresses, these two young women in the prime of their life, not even their prime, not even got to the prime yet, yep. get, their flames get snuffed out. Right. So, you know, that's what people are saying is the poltergeist cursed. But then they start adding in deaths that may not have been as, well, unexpected. So in poltergeist to the other side, there's like this old scary looking preacher and he's betrayed by a guy named Julian Beck, 60 years old. Already looked like he was dead. He already looked like he was dead. He died of stomach cancer in September 1985, actually before the movie was released. But he'd been already battling cancer for 18 months. So like he had already, you know, he'd already had cancer when he took the role. Yeah. So that's a little bit, you know, that's... That's a stretch. That's a stretch. I mean, I would think it would have more veracity if all the kids died. Right. right? Like right. if it just oh, yeah. took the kids... You know, like if the Ooh. if the boy died, you know, then I'd be like, mm, I don't know, three kids in a row. Right, that Weird. would be spooky. But it didn't happen. And then the guy that plays the uh, like the good spirit, the uh, the Indian spirit in Poltergeist Two. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Now Will Sampson. Now Will Sampson also played the Indian in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh wow! And I, I don't want to spoil his role in One Fl- in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, but he's. Well. But the Indian is a great, he's a great he's character an important, in that important movie. Role. Yeah. Integral yes, part the, of the story. The climax all rests on him. So did Toby Hooper ever say anything about the poltergeist curse? Uh, when I looked up at like his personal things, like, no, not really. No. Or he wasn't he was never in like the E True Hollywood stories or anything like that. So he, okay. he just stayed aloof. But the fact is that people thought there was this and they talk about it and you know, they send around emails about it that and the thing is the emails wouldn't even be 
like real stuff. The emails would say things like, oh yeah, all the children died, and one died in a car accident, one died suddenly. We all heard about the bowel obstruction one, you know. Right. Like mom would talk about that. She'd be like, you know, that would that's how that girl from Poltergeist died. And, Make you know, sure you're pooping regular. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is the kind of it thing she'd say. It could happen to you. Have um, some fiber. Have a prune. <laughs> it will keep you alive. But that's the thing. So, like, the curse was just these these two these two older guys that died because they were sick, and these two younger yeah. women who died. So, the two younger women is a horrible coincidence, and it's very right. sad. I just can't help thinking of the prune right. that that stands between you and life and death. <laughs> that does sound like what Mom would say. <laughs> so, the poltergeist curse is probably BS. But the director, remember they made a, a new version of Poltergeist, a, a remake? Yeah. A couple Sam years back. Now, now it's got Sam Rockwell, who we all love. Sam. I didn't see the new one. I didn't either. Yeah. But this makes me want to see it. When did you see the new one? Not yet, no. The director of the new Poltergeist, and this is from USA Today in February 2015 when the movie came out. The director of the new Poltergeist, his name is Gil Keenan. And he said, bring on the curse. Ah, oh, tempting fate. Yeah, seriously. Here's his quote. He was probably eating a lot of prunes. <laughs> right. Here's his quote. Can't wait. This is why I showed up. How great. You go through this life looking th- for a curse. And here's the opportunity to step right into one and make a movie. <laughs> I've been trying to catch a curse since I was like 11. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. He's like, I eat 10 prunes a day. I'm bulletproof. <laughs> I'm right. <laughs> I'm curse proof. <laughs> And so he, they, the movie was shot in Toronto, probably to take advantage of the, of the Toronto and Canadian tax incentives. And he gets excited and says, this is a USA Today article. He goes, I honest to God rented a house that was haunted. I have never been in a haunted house, but there was a woman ghost in the house I rented while I made this movie. She liked me so there was never a problem. I was conscientious of it. There was a third floor that was locked and we didn't have a key to it. But as we walked past it, my daughter would casually point and say, that's where the ghost lives. And I believed her. I felt her the whole time. And people outside would ask sometimes if there was a woman staying in the house. They would see a woman in a black dress going up and down the stairs. It was super crazy and real. (laughs) I believe you. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. He's my kind of guy, trying to catch a curse, runs a haunted house. I've been trying to get a curse since I was 11. (laughs) How do you get cursed? Come on, I've been walking under ladders every five minutes. Can't catch a curse to save my life. <laughs> I've been looking for those black cats, just throwing them to, in front of me just so they cross my path. Nothing's working. That's great, Gil. Um, <laughs> anyway, I think the curse was the, the box office of the new Poltergeist movie Aww, more than anything else. Oh, sad. <laughs> yeah. So well, what hey. was next? What was next for Toby? Well, so Toby Hooper made a deal with Canon Films. And if you guys remember, so Canon Films was a, a studio that was around for, I don't know, like 30 years. And they were really famous for making, like, the missing in action movies. And they made, like, Chuck Norris action films. And they would make all, uh, well, like, B-movie action and horror stuff. So that was the Canon Film Group. And, like, these two producers, uh, Mahanyam Globus and Yanim Golan. I can't, I'm sorry, I don't even know their names. I'm butchering them. But they were, like, they had Israeli names. It was Gohem and Globus, these two producers that would do all these awesome movies and they would always go for the most exploitative thing possible and they give toby hooper a three-picture deal but the thing is they say you have to make texas chainsaw massacre 2 you know so that was the yeah, idea demand 
They give him three movies, but the third movie has to be Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. So Toby Hooper's first film in that series is written by uh, Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien, who wrote uh, Return of the Living Dead, and he also wrote uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's version of Dune. He was coming on to write the script for that version of Dune. Um, But Dan O'Bannon. So Dan O'Bannon worked with John Carpenter on Dark Star and stuff. Dan O'Bannon writes great horror and sci-fi movies. And Dan O'Bannon adapts a 1976 book by a weirdo outsider writer, Colin Wilson, called The Space Vampires and turns it into the movie Life Force. One of my favorites. One of my favorites. So if you guys have seen Life Force, it's about the naked woman that walks through London and drains the like the life force out of people and turns them into zombies. It's great. Yes, it is a fantastic movie. And it's kind of romantic too. I don't know. There's something about it that I really dig. And it's really one of those films that, uh, first of all, it's got a really good role for Patrick Stewart before he's in Star Trek The Next Generation. So it's Patrick Stewart like early. And so that's fun to see him and stuff before he was Captain Picard. Yeah. And uh, it's just a... So the idea behind Life Force is that these guys go out in this space shuttle called the Churchill, and it's, it's, a, it's a U.S. Oh, that's right. That's right. It's a U.S. and Brit uh, joint venture into space. And they go out into space, and they find these three extraterrestrials out there, and yeah. they bring them back. And when the yeah, because they're wa- like in homostasis and all naked and stuff, <laughs> in like clear coffins, and they bring on the nakedness like right away. Yeah, they don't make you wait for it. It's like full frontal right there. Well, that's the Canon Film Group. That's what I mean. Like they would were willing to do something. Um, they weren't afraid to use the exploitation market to try to sell the movie. And the fact is, like they pull no punches with this naked space vampire. It worked out, Allison. Yep, it yeah. worked. I'm like, bring on the naked. <laughs> and, and it's a good film. And in the end, it is a romance and sacrifice and, you know, kind of saves the day. And so it has, a, it has some heart to it. But it also has some great zombie scenes and people killing each other and, like, yeah. faces shriveled and things. But so Colin Wilson, though, uh, he hated the movie. Oh, he wrote to one of his friends that had a movie ad- adapted. He wrote to his friend. He's like, you know how you said you'd never seen a movie worse than this? He's like, I've just seen it, and it's called Life Force. Oh. And, it was, it was, and it was based on his book. But now Colin Wilson, though, is a, uh, I mean, he's an English writer, but he also is one of those beat generation type of writers, and he wasn't afraid to delve into the supernatural. Absolutely. And Colin Wilson only wrote The Space Vampires because he was challenged to write a Lovecraftian novel by none other than August Derleth. Yeah! From Sauk City, Wisconsin. Yeah, August! So Colin Wilson Wilson and August Derleth were like pen pals, just like August Derleth and H.B. Lovecraft and everything. And uh, he said, I bet you can't write a Lovecraftian novel. Oh, the golden days of collaboration. Yeah, and Colin, yes. Wilson, Colin Wilson turned around and wrote The Space Vampires, which became Life Force, which was a huge bomb, but I thought it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was awesome, too. I really, really enjoyed it. Hey, Mike and Allison. Yeah. Yeah. I challenge you to write a Lovecraftian novel. <laughs> okay. All right, then. Uh-oh. Give me, give me a couple of weeks before I can come up with something as good as The Space Vampires. <laughs> yeah. 
Me but too. the thing is, like the idea is like, okay, there's like um, this naked chick that runs around London and like, and, but Sucks the thing the life is, life out of people. But the nudity is kind of, it's important to the story because that's like the, the base thing that attracts people towards her. Right. You know, because she has a vulnerability about her. Because we have an idea that a naked woman is going to be some kind of vulnerable, needs help, needs something. And you use that against the people. Like that they suck the life force out of them because she's using the fact that she's naked against men. Because it's either some kind of lust or it's some kind of protective Mm. nature or it's some kind of thing. So her nudity, while it's exploitative from a film perspective, because you get to say boobs, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's also part of her weapon against. Right. The people so it makes she's sense trying to in the story. Yes, but you know, Life Force is a great movie written by a paranormal author. So Toby Hooper is involved in all these weird paranormal things. He's directing a movie that has a curse attached to it. He directs a movie that has partly inspired by Ed Gein. He directs a film based on a work from a paranormal author. And then he directs a, a remake of a 1950s movie called Invaders from Mars. That's more like a kids version of oh. you know. It's like imagine the other side of. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know how Close ah. Encounters of the Third Kind of aliens are nice? Right. Invaders from Mars are not. Ah. Yeah. Um, and then the third movie he has to make for canon is Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And instead of it being a, uh, like a straight-up horror movie, he turns Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 into like a comedy. Like a, well, it's a dark comedy because it involves chainsaws and stuff, and, and a guy named Leatherface. Uh, but it also has Dennis Hopper, who's always at his best when he plays a crazy, funny guy. And so the thing is, he delivers like a funny, dark comedy instead of a straight up terrifying movie with Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And that kind of, well, it makes everybody mad. <laughs> and he doesn't get a good movie for a while. Uh... But Toby Hooper moves to TV does an episode of Amazing Stories for uh, Steven Spielberg. Amazing starring... Stories. I love yeah. that show. We all loved Amazing Stories. And Steven Spielberg has him direct, like, I think the final episode of Amazing Stories, which has Weird Al, like Weird Al Yankovic's in it. Awesome. So that's cool. So we got to work with Weird Al. Okay. Also, he gets to start doing these, you know, different genre TV shows. And in 1991, uh, he gets a chance to do a show, and I didn't see this when it was on, and I don't know why, why I didn't see it. Probably because it was burned off in the summer. Like it wasn't. They only made like three or four episodes, but it was called Haunted Lives: True Ghost Stories, and it takes that recreation thing they used to do on Unsolved Mysteries, yeah, and does it for ghost stories. Sweet. And the first episode, of course, is narrated by John Larroquette. No, I'm, oh, <laughs> I'd be better with John Larroquette. No, it's it's narrated by uh, Leonard Nimoy. Yay! That's awesome. Yes, and he only does the first episode, but Toby Hooper only directs the first episode. Okay? Oh, okay. And we'll link to this. I already uh, um, in the show notes we have the video. You can watch it because the effects director on it put it on his own personal Vimeo channel because you can't nice. find it. You can't find it anywhere. It's not something that's going to be on video or anything. It's only three episodes of a series from twenty six years ago. But the effects director is like. Hey, here's a show that I edited and I did all the effects for in the early 90s, directed by Toby Hooper. And that's what he writes on it, so we'll share that in the show notes. But there's three ghost stories in this first episode, okay? Okay. One is about spirits at an elementary school in Austin, Texas. The other is 
uh, the ghost in uh, a hotel in yeah, San ho- Diego, California. Yeah, the Hotel Del Coronado. But my personal favorite and the one that I'm really excited about is going to have to be the haunted Toys R Us. Wait, what? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, when we were kids, where would we want to shop? The haunted Toys R Us. Come on. <laughs> right. But also because... Is it the ghost of Jeffrey? <laughs> yeah, the big giraffe. Yeah. <laughs> hey, giraffes are scary, man. Those big <laughs> necks. true. Those big necks aren't natural. Those big necks are extraterrestrial. <laughs> you saw AI, how the, like, they had like long-necked robots at the end. Anyway, yes. AI, what a bore. Um, that's when Steve, <laughs> Steven Spielberg went from hero to zero at that movie. But, uh, okay. So the Haunted Toys R Us was featured in the TV show that made me interested in the paranormal in the first place. That's incredible. Oh. Yeah. Kathleen Crosby, Fran Tarkenden, <laughs> John Davidson, and Allison and I were trying to discuss, like, if we had a That's Incredible today, like, who yeah. would we have? Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers instead of Fran Tarkenden. We'd have Aaron Rodgers Absolutely. He has his <laughs> own UFO signing, so that would be perfect. Cool. Kathleen Crosby could be replaced by Kelly Ripa. <laughs> And yep. In fact, Kathleen Crosby, I believe, was on a show with Regis Philbin really? in the 1970s. Yeah. Really? In California. They had a, um, she was like his second banana or like his second banana. What a <laughs> <laughs> and Milton, second Mil- banana. Milton Berle was on it too. Um, okay. But Ke- so Kelly Ripa and then uh, the John Davidson entertainer game show host type character would probably have to be Neil Patrick Harris. Good choices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then we could have that's incredible for a modern day, and I would totally. I hope you're listening, it. Hollywood. <laughs> that's right. So the thing is, but they, <laughs> the um, the haunted Toys R Us is all about something that happened in the late 19th century. There's this farmhand um, named Yanni Janssen, <laughs> which, so- <laughs> which sounds like somebody just forgot the J, <laughs> or actually, actually, it sounds like in uh, uh, Indiana Jones. And the Last Crusade, when he's like, in ancient Hebrew, there is no J, it's I. You know when Sean Connery says that? And <laughs> that's then, right, like, yep. He steps on the thing, and so that's what, so it's Yanni Janssen. Um, <laughs> so Yanni Janssen, Yanni Janssen's in love with the, the daughter of the, like the farmer that he works for. But she's engaged to be married, and he... Um, and she doesn't it, want any young Janssen's. She doesn't. She doesn't <laughs> want. A, she, she doesn't want any young Janssen's. She no, doesn't no, want. No. Ya, she doesn't want Yanni Janssen Junior. No, that's right. Um. So, uh, so she doesn't want any part of him, and uh, like the story is either he killed himself or like he dies in a freak like accident, like an axe mm-hmm. accident. And it's funny because the, the in the Toby Hooper version, um. <laughs> As, a po- as opposed to like the unsolved mysteries, like everything's cheesy, um, he does some really great camera shots. Like it does, like they, they focus like too much on the axe as it hits the wood and stuff, and it, oh. it makes it pretty scary. <laughs> so you can see that he's actually being That's an, cool. an auteur in yeah. his TV job, where it's like, hey, Toby Hooper got to eat, but he does a great job in making this it's scary. Still creative. Yeah. So the Toys R Us is built on that property 100 years later. And people are seeing toys stack up in weird places. The big thing is that people hear their names called when there's nobody there. Like they're walking down the aisle. They'll hear a name spoken right next to them and there's nobody there. So psychic Sylvia Brown 
conducts a seance there in the late 1970s. And I think the, the people from That's Incredible are actually there taping the seance, like in the, in the show. And Yanni shows up. And it, I'll embed this picture in the show notes. But there's an infrared camera, and they get, they get a picture of something. It looks like a form. They see a, a silhouette in the light, like at the end of the hallway where there's nobody there. Oh, wow. Creepy. So you're saying all of a sudden this new age music performer shows up in the picture <laughs> right. playing the pan flute. <laughs> Yanni Anton shows up and uh, he scares no, everybody. That's cool. Him and the ghost of Jeffrey. So the thing is, in, in the infrared picture, there's this creature with a really long neck and people freak out. No, but there is something in the picture. And, and that's what they showed him. That's incredible. And that was... To me, that was the most exciting thing about Toby Hooper making this TV show was that very they cool. made a dramatization. And they, in fact, in the show, they have a reunion of all the employees who have seen things there and the employees who are at the seance and stuff like that. And they talk to another person tells the stories of what they saw when they worked at, cool. at, the, at the haunted Toys R Us in Sunnyvale, not Sunnydale, California. <laughs> That's important to make that nice. distinction. Right, because Buffy was in Sunnydale. Haunted <laughs> Toys R Us is Sunnyvale. California. Anyway, so I just watched that before we talked about it. And that Yeah, the thing me is- too. And I thought the most interesting part was how they brought the workers back together, you know, for a reunion and they shared like their stories um from uh the Haunted Toys R Us. So I mean, that made it compelling for me because you know, the whole Yanni Yansen story, I mean, was that really real? But it's interesting to see the real people interact and and tell their stories of working there and the weird things that happened to them well and psychic sylvia brown isn't necessarily known for being the most real i said we were gonna get back to james the amazing randy yes and she's she's you know featured prominently and so she would be on she'd be on larry king live and james the amazing randy would always challenge her to be to his million dollar challenge to prove that she could that psychic powers exist and uh she would always find some way to kind of weasel out of the thing. She's like, well, you know, he wouldn't put the money in escrow. And why would I take the challenge if he wouldn't put the money in escrow? What? You're not buying a house. You're going to get a million dollars from James the Amazing Randy live on television. He can't weasel out of that. So that's ridiculous. And also, Sylvia Brown used to be on Montel. You guys remember Montel Williams? Yeah. Of course. Well, Sylvia Brown would be on Montel Williams every week. And she would do like missing persons. And in 2004, she had missing persons of this, uh, well, this one woman whose daughter disappeared in Ohio. And she said, you won't be reunited with your daughter until you get reunited in heaven. Right. So she told the woman her daughter died. Uh, Well, remember that guy in Ohio who had those three women captured in his basement? Yes. That That was one of the girls. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, so so she told Disproven. this woman that her, that her she told this woman that her daughter was dead. Her daughter was actually alive. That's horrible. And oh. so that is a when we're talking about swinging and missing, that was Sylvia Brown's 1941, right there. That was an horrible. epic strikeout. Yeah, and so anyway, uh, so Sylvia, but so who knows if the Yanni Janssen stuff was all up to par, but people did have experiences in the Haunted Toys R Us. And it's cool that Toby Hooper put that, and he did it. There's some great, like, like zooms and pans, and there's stuff in there that you wouldn't see in a normal television program. So he, he got to give it some character and some real horror movie panache. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, th- I thought that was great. 
Now, after the 90s, Toby Hooper doesn't get to do that many great things. As far as movies, he does a movie called The Mangler about an evil dishwasher. <laughs> but come <laughs> the on. That's pretty sweet. Come on, that is pretty sweet. That, you got to give him his props. <laughs> I do. I mean, he did make a movie called The Mangler about an evil dishwasher in 1995. Somebody's got to do it. That's like the last one that I actually saw. Um, he makes an episode of Dark Skies. He directs the pilot of Steven Spielberg's epic sci-fi channel miniseries called Taken, which is like a unifying theory of all alien phenomena, starting with Roswell to abductions to present day. Actually, Heather Donahue from uh, The Blair Witch Project is in it. That was like her next role after The Blair Witch Project. Uh, and take, I recommend taking to anybody. It's it's really a great miniseries, and I was enraptured by it in the year 2000. But Toby you Hooper- You were taken by taken. I was taken by taken. It really is like it covers every part of the alien phenomena. I can't wait to watch that. Yeah, it really is. It's really, even though it's like 17 years old now, it's still right, pretty- I it's, know. <laughs> it's still good. And Toby Hooper does a great job with the pilot episode. And that's the really thing, last thing I paid cool. attention. He directed a couple episodes of Masters of Horror on Showtime. And then, he, you know, he just passed away this year. But the thing is, he had a big run of really great films in the late 70s, early 80s, and throughout the 80s of, of films that we'll all remember. And the thing is, they had a lot of cool connections to the paranormal, where, you know, he was documenting or where he was uh, remaking true paranormal events to taking stuff influenced by H.P. Lovecraft to uh, Ed Gein. So you know, Toby Hooper, like, we first talked about him, like, oh, he'd be fun to talk about because I really like his movies. And then I realized that there were all these things from the poltergeist cursed and on that was definitely had paranormal connections. So anyway, thank you, Toby, for the movies and good luck to you. On the other side. Yep. I'm, we'll see you on the other side. Now, Allison, if people want to find you, where can they find you? MilwaukeeGhost.com. That's right. And um, well, right now, Wendy and I are going to play a song for you. Uh, that we do with our band Sunspot. And now this song actually, we're using the connection here because uh, the, the Haunted Toys are us. And also this song is chock full of 80s references. And it's, it's a song called Broken Toy. And it, uh, well, we thought it'd be appropriate for an episode where we talk about Haunted Toys are us and we also talk about the 80s a ton. Here's Sunspot with Broken Toy. I opened a box of toys I broke And the ones that have broken me
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Oh, oh, we're not done yet. Absolutely not. We're not done until we thank our awesome Patreon community. Particularly, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you Dr. Ned. Uh, Dr. Ned is at the support level where he gets his name mentioned and a little special thanks in every episode of See You on the Other Side. But all of our Patreons are important people to us. In fact, what did we just do, Wendy? We had a really fun live hangout with our Patreons or patrons, whatever you call them. I always want to call them Patreons, but that makes it kind of sound like a robot for some reason. Yeah, Patreon, 5,000. But yeah, we had a great chat. Uh, I took everyone with me for a stroll through downtown Gettysburg because that's where I was, and so I uh, had everybody looking for ghosts in my <laughs> in my video conference window. Did you see any, Mike? I saw like six ghosts, and the Patreon saw even more. And that's the thing, because if you become a See on the Other Side <laughs> Patreon subscriber, you are guaranteed to see a ghost. <laughs> okay, all right. And how do they do that, Mike? How do they become a subscriber? Well, you can do that at www.othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm going to write this book about naked space vampires. <laughs> it's got to be brilliant. It really is.